Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You know, earlier this morning, uh, Nathan looked at the scripture readings and said, geez, we have short readings. Does that mean it's going to be a short sermon? And I said, no promise of that. We are continuing on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, our series, and it's hard to believe we're at the next to last one. And for those of you that weren't here last week, let me just tell you actually what we've been dealing with for the last two weeks. At the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, we've been dealing with what is called the parousia, the second coming of Christ, and talking about what that means according to what Paul says there, which is only a partial picture of that. But what was really going on and what Paul was trying to address was the fact that Jesus' second coming was delayed. People anticipated that Jesus would return soon. And when he didn't return soon, it raised questions about those who were still alive and those who had died and how is all this going to work. But it wasn't just those questions that were being raised. Because, as we said early on in the series, Paul actually was there around a month, plus or minus, before he got ran out of town. And so there were lots of questions that were lingering questions not only about Jesus' delay in coming back and what that means for our lives in terms of big picture, people who died and when we die and what if he comes back before we die, but also day to day. How do we live our lives day to day? And several times Paul would even say in his letter more and more. In other words, you're beginning to implement this in your lives, but you need to do it more. And you really don't understand this part of it, and so you need to do that more. The Christian life was never meant to be, I have arrived, or it's stagnant. We are constantly always to be moving forward, to grow, to blossom, to reflect His fruit in our lives, no matter what stage we are in. And so what Paul is doing now is he's just painted the big picture This is what the big picture looks like. This is what your goal is as you're moving forward. But let's talk about what needs to happen incrementally. Day by day, week by week, as your life continues to unfold. Think about in how many aspects and areas of our lives that's true. I mean, for example, these football games that are going on right now. College. Now, I know a lot of you are watching college football right now got a lot of college football fans here. And it's really interesting because these teams, you know, especially when they're in the top four, they get enamored with the goal. You know, we're going to have a championship team. We're going to be undefeated. And sometimes, sometimes, they forget about the day-to-day, the basics, the fundamentals. And teams have to practice the basics and fundamentals all the time. And you have to win each game week by week. And we sometimes forget, by the way, These college kids, they're kids. They're emotional, right? 
18, 19, 20 years old. Do you remember when that was for some of you? I mean, the reality is, that's a long time ago for some of us. Some haven't arrived yet. But for some of us, that's a long time ago. And they are kids, and so they might win a big game, and then the next week they have a letdown against a lesser team because they forgot. It's not just about the goal. It's not just about the championship. You know, it's not, if you're a musician, just about the concert in Carnegie Hall. It's about working your way to that point of practicing every day. Friday, we had an organ concert at noon. And there were the three divas, as they called themselves, Nina being one of the divas, and two other women from churches around us, and then they had a plus. The plus was Jonathan from St. Francis. So four organists here. And I was looking around the room, and it was actually a, a, a nice crowd for the organ recital, but there was this young man in the back of the church, and I noticed him, and I thought, he's out of place. I was the other youngest person here, I think. (laughs) And so I thought, he's a little out of place. And so, anyway, Jonathan notices the guy, too. And he introduces him as Francois Olivier. And if you look in your bulletin, he's doing a concert this afternoon at Holy Family. And he says, let's have Francois come forward and play. Okay? Okay? This kid looks like he's 18. He's probably around 25. But he comes forward, no music, and he sits in place, and he has a really unique style. But he played for five minutes, I presume flawlessly. I didn't know the piece. And it was fabulous. And what we were told was he's practicing about 12 hours a day right now. That's why he can do that. If you practice 12 hours a day, a few pieces, then you're ready when you're called upon to do something like that. See, that's what our faith is meant to be about. That when we think about the eternal picture and what we're aiming at, that it is being invested, involved, practicing our faith Every day, living it out because we're walking with the Lord, because we're seeking to be filled with the Spirit every day. We're reading His Word and we're drawing from Him speaking into our lives every day. And then we're living it. We're practicing it. You know, there's a phrase that a lot of people have used, have heard, the end justifies the means, right? And what that usually means is when we focus on the end, whatever the goal is, it doesn't matter what we do in order to get there. Therefore, we can step on people, we can abuse people, we can live dishonestly in order to get to the goal. What if we took that a little differently? That the end, our goal to live with the Lord for all eternity, that the means reflects that ends, justifying it in a different way, that because he is my goal, because I want to spend eternity with him, that the means that I use to get there are living out his life today. 
that our lives have an integrity about them. That the ends, if you will, reflect, is reflected by the means, reflected in the means. That's really what we're supposed to be about. That's what his goal is for our life. Day in, day out. What we think, what we feel, how we live, our disposition, our attitudes, our feelings getting in line. That we draw on his word to learn what that means. That we spend time in prayer and seek his spirit to fill us and change us so that that's how we live. So that when we read a line like the end of Matthew chapter 5, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. Matthew's chapter 5 through 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. It might be the first sermon Jesus preached. It's the longest sermon that we have in the Scriptures. And if you go home and read it this afternoon, it'll take you about 15 or 20 minutes. But what you'll see in that sermon is day-to-day living. You'll see practical recommendations, guidance as to what it means to live the Christian life out. And at the end of Matthew chapter 5, we see, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I guarantee you, all the people that were listening to Jesus at the time, many of whom were the general public, were saying, we can't do that. I mean, look at the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're the ones that are supposed to be perfect. They're the experts in the law. They have the resources and the knowledge to know what it means to live out the perfect life. And they're imperfect. How could we possibly do that? See, we misunderstand the word perfect sometimes. See, because you can do things perfectly on the outside. You can be legalistic about things, but it really isn't true for your life. What this word perfect means is complete or whole. That what God wants for our lives is completion and wholeness. That our lives are broken in and of themselves apart from Him. And so He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place for our sin because we need a Savior, because we are imperfect. And in order to live the life of wholeness and completeness. We need a Lord. We need the Spirit to fill us. That more and more we reflect the life of Christ. And it's His Word that fills us. And it's His Spirit that completes us. And we begin to walk the walk. So when Jesus says, Be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect, That's what he's talking about. That you learn what it means to have a life of integrity that holds together, that's complete and whole. The life of Christ. So with that in mind, let's look at our passage for today. And you can look in your bulletin or you can look on page 1077 in your pew Bible. So Paul, again, trying to apply this whole mindset of an eternal or big picture perspective 
Now he's focusing on the day-to-day stuff of the church. But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. You know, we are meant to be the body of Christ, connected to each other. And in the body of Christ, the Lord gives different, different gifts and different callings. And if you look at passages, for example, very similar to this, Ephesians 4. Let me read to you sections of Ephesians 4. I therefore, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is like the same idea. And then he goes later on in Ephesians chapter 4 to talk about the different gifts of the Spirit and how we fit and work together. And then towards the end of, it, of Ephesians chapter 4, Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. But as he begins this section talking about this body life and learning what it means to live together, notice what he begins with. He begins with your treatment of your leaders. Now, this might sound a little self-serving, okay? But really, that's what he's talking about here. He says, the Lord has placed these people over you. And so you need to respect them. What does respect look like? Is respect slander? Gossip? Causing division? Talking behind people's back? Is that what respect looks like? Or esteeming one highly in love? See, that's what some people really miss about my role here. My role here isn't just to pontificate and be the preacher-teacher aloof and removed from all of you. I'm here to love you. And sometimes people forget that. I bring the word of God to you, trying to seek to love you and pastor you and care for you. And that was one of the slams of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Is that they were legalistic and without compassion. I mean, I don't think I would have stayed over 22 years if I really didn't like a lot of you. See, this is an agreement. We're part of a body. We are meant to care, care for, care with one another. That's what the church is meant to be about. And sometimes we lose sight of that. You know, sometimes when people, and I know this, when people see the clergy and they hear clergy preach about certain issues or ways of life that have to do with the scripture applied to their lives, you know what some people's reaction is? I guarantee you. Well, they don't live in the real world. All you need to do is spend some time with me and my family. You would know I live in the real world. The church is the real world. There are challenges in the church that are reflected in the culture and vice versa. 
that we as the church are meant to handle may be in a little different light than we see handled in the culture, in society around us. That we are meant to learn and figure out how to love and work with one another and be a witness to the world. That's what we're meant to do. When we face challenges, when we face conflict, when we deal with the difficult issues of life, instead of looking at me or the scriptures or what you hear and say, well, that doesn't really fit in my world. What does he know? What does he know about what I want? What does he know about what I need? You know, I was talking to someone recently. And it's funny because when I ran into this guy, I remember seeing his face in church, but I had no idea what his name was. And he's one of these sporadic, hit-and-miss people who comes and goes, you know, he and his wife. And, I, and it's so hard for me to know people's names, which drive, drives me nuts, by the way. I like to know people. And so he said that he retired here about 12 years ago, and he decided when he came here that he was not going to get involved in the church because of all the conflicts that he had to deal with in his previous church. That he said, you know, I got so involved, I almost got over-involved, and I ended up dealing with all kinds of conflicts. Now, it's interesting because the first thing he's telling me is that the church is a real-world situation. Catch it. That's what he's telling me. But the second thing is, he doesn't want it to be. He doesn't want it to be. Why do you think we need a Savior? Because we all come here as broken people. And we're going to have challenges because none of us are perfect. And I've said this in the new members class, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go in it because you'll ruin it. You know, so I started talking to this guy about what it means to be part of the church, part of the body, connected, involved, invested. Because that's what a body is. The church is the real world. And unfortunately, we don't always inform the real world because we fall into the same traps. You know, what's interesting is that I am sure this guy in his real world life before he retired here had conflict in his family, at work. I guarantee you. Why didn't he opt out of his family or opt out of work? Once again, we misunderstand what the church is meant to be. The church is the real world. And we deal with conflicts and challenges like the real world. And when I'm up here speaking, don't think that I don't live in a real world. Because I've had a family and family challenges. I have a family now. And there are still challenges. And we haven't gotten it right after 35 years of marriage. We're, we're still loving each other, caring for each other. My kids are still imperfect after all this time. That's life. You know, why is it when you go to a doctor and you believe that doctor has your best interest in mind, you trust what he says? 
Why is it when you go to your financial planner and they're making money for you, you trust what they say? Why is it that we don't invest the same trust in what the Lord says and His Word says and His preachers and teachers say? And bring that into our lives as well. Because this is real life. What God is talking about in His Word is real life. That's what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Paul is doing here. Not everybody knows how it is. Unless you know the Word of God. Unless you're fully submitted to the Spirit. And you need to trust what the Lord says in His Word. And if I preach the Word of God, you need to trust that. If I don't, challenge me. And you need to grow. And we need to grow together. That's what it means to be the church. Secondly, toward the end of that verse, be at peace amongst yourselves. Be at peace amongst yourselves. You know, learning to live with peace, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We're told at Christmas, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, because Jesus came into the world. So we need to be people who are invested, involved, committed to peace. That the, one of the fruit of the Spirit of this church and our lives individually is peace. But that doesn't mean that it always comes easily. That's why we need to be loving each other, sometimes sacrificially loving each other. That's why we need to be ministers of reconciliation, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. That's why we need to be a forgiving people. Bearing one another's burdens and bearing with one another, as Paul says. That this is what it's really all about. When push comes to shove, we learn, we grow, we blossom in love and forgiveness. Learning to deal with conflict, our broken lives and other people's broken, broken lives. And notice some of the advice that he gives us along these lines. The first is, admonish the idlers. Admonish the idlers. Let me begin a quote that many of you will be able to complete. Idle hands are very good. If you didn't catch that, idle hands are the devil's workshop. That comes from this whole idea in scripture, by the way. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Now, what does it mean by idle hands? It means that someone is not working. See, and we've got a lot of idlers around the church. Did you ever notice that? People that come and worship and leave. When once again, the Lord wants us all invested in the body of Christ. That we are not the idlers. That we are meant to, because all of us, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you believe in Jesus, then you are saying that you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, it means you have gifts. And God wants you to use those gifts to bless the body. So he doesn't want you to be 
idol when it comes to church. He wants you to be connected to the body, connected to connection groups or a Bible study or both. He wants you to be invested and involved in the ministries of the church, giving of yourself. You know, it's interesting. I read something this morning in my quiet time that I'm going to quote you, and I absolutely love this quote. This is from Psalm 92. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. So the first thing that this says is they're invested in worship, the they. Listen to who the they is. In old age, they still produce fruit. There you go. That means you're not done. I don't care if you're old. This is for everyone. How many people come to the church retired or been there, done that mentality? Or that's for the younger people or that's for people who have more energy. It doesn't say that. It says in old age they still produce fruit. They are always green and full of sap. Now don't take that the wrong way. (laughs) That means you still have life flowing through you. That's what it means. No matter at what stage, you always have something to offer. That's what it means to be the church. That we're invested and involved. That we're part of it. He goes on to say, encourage the faint-hearted. You know, the churches are sometimes accused of shooting their wounded. And we need to be encouragers of one another, not tearing one another down. Help the weak. You know, it's interesting, when... When we're in families and we have someone in the family who's weak, we tend to want to help them. I grew up with a mentally retarded little sister. And it's amazing the impact that that had on my life in terms of the idea of helping the weak. We need to understand that there are people in churches who are weak, one way or another. There are people around us in the culture, the society, that are weak, one way or another. And we need to help The weak. Thirdly, be patient with one another. There's a biggie. Be patient with... First description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. We need to learn to be patient with each other. You know, it's interesting is we are selective about who we choose to be patient with. We really are. You know, there are certain people that we give them allowance that we're able to be patient with. And other people, they should know better. I mean, my goodness, aren't they an adult? Eh. You know, we are called to be patient with one another. It's really interesting. When I, when I first arrived here back in 1992, there was a couple here, and I knew this about them. They wanted somebody else to be the, rec, the rector here. Okay? And um, that person did not make the final process. So there was already an edge there, I think. After I'd been here for a year or two, They made an appointment with me, came into my office, and they say, we hate your preaching, we hate what you're doing to our church. And they said, we're pulling our pledge and we're thinking about leaving. And they got up to walk out of my office, and I said, excuse me. I said, can we sit down and talk about this for a minute? And they sat down, and I said, let me ask you a question. The Lord gave me the question to ask. It was really helpful. I said, how many of your boys, they had three boys, how many of your boys are involved in church? They said one sporadically, the other two not. 
I said, why do you think that is? And they said, well, we don't understand. We brought up brought them up in the church. And I said, that's one of the reasons why they're not attending, because the church that you went to did not teach them how the Word of God is meant to be in their lives. That this is a practical faith that's meant to be lived out. And what they realized when they got older, this doesn't work. It's pie in the sky, or it doesn't touch real life. And they left the church because they didn't find the church connecting to their lives. And I said, and the reason I'm changing the church the way I'm changing it is because I want young people to feel comfortable here and that the church is relevant for their lives. You know, theology doesn't change. God's word doesn't change. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. What changes is how we reach people. That's why we don't use the old English anymore. That's why we do a mixture of music. That we constantly have to reach people in a mode they can hear and understand and receive. That's part of who we are as the church. And I said, your boys didn't understand that, didn't connect, didn't catch that. I said, but that's what I'm trying to do here. So they said, well, we'll think about it. And they pulled their pledge. But they stayed. About three or four years later, I did a series on the Ten Commandments. They came up to me after the series was done, and they said, that is the best preaching we've ever heard. A few years after that, the man developed Alzheimer's. And I helped get him in our program that we started here, Memory Matters, started here as Alzheimer's Respite and Resource. And when he died, and I was there, she cried and hugged me and said, I am so glad you're here. A few weeks later, she called me up and she says, I've lost my rock. I don't know how to respond to the Lord. And I said, Jesus needs to be your rock. And we walked through that time together. And she said to me, Greg, I love you and you're always there for me. It's a learning curve for both of us about patience. That they learn to be patient with me and I learn to be patient with them. And I was with her when she died. That's how we're meant to be. We don't always agree with each other. But we figure it out. Boy, if we could show the world that. What a difference it would make. If we could be that way with each other. What a difference it would make. That's why he adds, be patient with each other. that learn to live with peace. Thirdly, and this is very much related, by the way, don't repay 
evil for evil. Boy, we want to get back at people, don't we? Do unto others before they do unto you. Something like that. Why do you think Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you? Let's back up a second. That doesn't sound like the Old Testament because he was quoting the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's because we misapply that scripture. And we misunderstand what the Old Testament's talking about. The Old Testament was trying to guide people. And there needs to be justice in society. Paul writes in Romans 13, the state does not bear the sword in vain. And we see Israel at times defending themselves. It's because the way things are handled for society, with the state, with the government, and with countries between one another, is different than how we are to handle our individual lives and relationships with each other. That we are not to be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth in personal relationships. We are meant to be forgiving one another, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. That's what we're to be. We are not a country or an island unto ourselves. We are a people. And learning to relate as people to people, with God's love, with God's forgiveness, with God's grace, is what we're meant to be. And we need to learn that. And we need to practice that. You know, our faith is more than love as a feeling. It's love as a commitment. It's costly love. It's sacrificial love. It's the kind of love that Jesus showed on the cross. And that he is meant to be not just our Savior, but our Lord as we practice that. You know, a lot of times we are a bumper sticker society. You know what I mean by that? We love these catchy phrases and slogans. And we tend to quote them or live by them. You know, practice random acts of kindness. That made it for a while, right? Still on people's cars, but let me tell you what happens. Sometimes those things wear out. Bumper stickers wear out, just like mottos do. And sometimes we get rid of the car. So we don't have the sticker anymore. You know, we are not to, meant to be random about our faith. Random about our kindness. Random about our forgiveness. Random about our sacrificial love. We are meant to be intentional and deliberate. We are meant to grow every day. So that we are constantly transformed. So that the goal of our lives is to be complete, perfect, until we reach the goal, which is Jesus Christ. That's the goal. And the life lived between now and then, when we see him face to face, is to constantly grow in that. That's why Paul says, comfort one another, that we are to be a comfort to one another, that like the Holy Spirit, the Holy Comforter, we're to draw alongside one another, and bear the fruit of the Spirit in our walk with the Lord and each other. And that we are to edify one another. You know, the word edify, or build one another up, if you will, means that we are not into destruction or deconstruction, 
We're into construction. Building the edifice, if you will, the church. That we are to build one another up in love. As Paul says elsewhere. You know, I tell this in the new members class, so some of you may have heard this before. When my dad graduated college, I was about 11 years old, we moved out to the suburbs. And we moved out to a Ryan home plan. And so they were building houses all, of, all around us. So we had an endless supply of building stuff for us to build shacks. And it was wonderful. But you know, one of the things that always perplexed me when I went around these houses is I'd walk into the houses. Our house was like a model. It was completed for us. We'd walk into these houses and there's mud everywhere. And there's cut up pieces of wood and sawdust. And there's wires hanging everywhere. And it's like, how does that eventually look like this? It's a house under construction. This is a house under construction. It is messy. It's not perfect yet. None of you are perfect yet. If you find a perfect church... As I said before, I'll say again, don't go in it because you'll ruin it. You are imperfect. I'm imperfect. We need a Savior. And we have our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us. We need a Lord because we can't do this in and of ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us. Until we arrive at the house that's complete in heaven... We live under construction, individually and corporately. But we are to be the church. Day by day, as a body, growing in the knowledge and love of him and blessing those around us. You have the big picture. Now live it out, day by day. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord God, sometimes we fool ourselves into believing that we've arrived or we don't need to change or we are who we are. That the church should not have challenges or problems or conflict. That our lives, if we walk by faith, should be easy. Lord, I pray that amidst the challenges and pain and struggle that we face, that we would seek you moment by moment, day by day. That we would recognize our own shortcomings and empty ourselves and be filled with your spirit. That we would be peacemakers amidst the conflict that's around us. That we would be ones who seek to serve you and serve each other. Lord, I pray right now in our mind's eye we might see Jesus. Jesus who lived by compassion. Jesus who went to the cross 
because we need a Savior. Jesus, who rose again to show that he has power over sin and death. That he might be our model, as well as our Savior and Lord. That we might seek him day by day. And by the power of your Holy Spirit be transformed. That we would be made perfect, whole and complete. Until we attain that time when we're with Jesus for all eternity. Lord, we have the big picture. Help us to live day by day as we work towards it. And we pray this in Jesus' name.